Well, please take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke and the second chapter. Luke chapter 2. This morning we're going to begin to look at at least the first part of verses 1 through 20, which give us an account of the birth and announcement of none other than our Lord Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 1, and we'll read through verse 20. Now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring to you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. When the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, Let's go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. When they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. And all who heard it, wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. The shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as had been told them. It is Christmas in June. Learning about the nativity of our Lord Jesus Christ there is no better time than now to do this. There's really no better time than any time to learn about the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ and to see the glorious wonder of what God has done in sending his son into the world. God made flesh, the God-man, coming into the world in one of the most significant events in the history of the universe. And that is, of course, no exaggeration. This is one of the most well-known text in all of the Bible, one that is read around living rooms and kitchen tables and in Christmas services every year by probably millions, if not tens of millions of people. 
It is a text with which most people here are very likely familiar. But it is a text that shows us that God is fulfilling his promise that he has made in the past about sending a savior into the world. Not only in the ancient history of Israel and throughout the prophets of the Old Testament, but even to these uh, who were told that this would take place in chapter 1. That John the Baptist would come as a forerunner. That Mary was told that she would have a child and that he would be the son of God. And God is now making good on this promise to this young woman that he would give her a son. And that this son would be the great and lofty son of the most high God. Well, even though this is one of the most significant events in history, it was not one of the most uh, extravagant births in history. In fact, it was something that took place in great obscurity and something where the circumstances that caused this to take place when it did, or in particular where it did and how it did, were things that wouldn't have even been brought to most people's attention were it not for the angelic intervention and the angelic message and the shepherds relating that message to other people afterward. This was a very inconspicuous birth. It was simply a woman giving birth. Uh, This was taking place in a very small town, kind of out in the middle of nowhere, and there wasn't anything that was spectacular about it on that particular front. And yet, God was doing something extremely significant. These things which were happening right under the nose of people around them were actually some of the most important things that would ever happen. And very few people who were around at least or uh, when this took place at the moment of this birth would have had any idea of what was going on. And so it is that this is the way that God often works, not telling us what he's doing, not telling us why he's doing it, but using every single thing for his own purposes and here bringing about something eternally and extremely significant through something that otherwise seemed extremely small. So what we'll find in this text as we begin to look through this this morning and uh, certainly uh, next time as well is that God's promised son is born as a savior. God's promised son is born as a savior in the city of David and his birth is announced to some very unexpected witnesses. Again, God's promised son is born as a savior in the city of David and his birth is announced to some very unexpected witnesses. We call this passage, Christ the Savior is born. Christ the Savior is born. And the first thing that happens is this, Mary gives birth in Jerusalem. It says in verse 1, Now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. The first part of this event of Mary giving birth is a decree goes forth. A decree goes forth in those days, that is the days of chapter 1. There was a whole lot going on in chapter 1. Not much happening prophetically or uh, in otherwise a biblical revelation taking place in chapter, before chapter 1 for several hundred years. But God injected himself prophetically into the world giving a messenger to Zacharias, the priest, that he would have a son named John, giving a message to Mary, who would be the mother of Jesus, giving some signs to each of them of what would take place, and then ultimately, as we saw at the end of chapter 1, giving, uh, giving John to Elizabeth as 
her son, the long-awaited son that she thought that she would never have, who would be the forerunner of the Lord. Well, not only would John go before Jesus in preparing the way for him when they were adults in their ministry, but John would go before Jesus in his birth. And having been born, John the Baptist has now come into the world, and shortly after to follow is none other than Jesus himself. So in those days simply refers to the days in which all of this was taking place, the prophetic revelation, John the Baptist being born. Now, this decree comes from Caesar Augustus. This is the source of the decree. Those of you who know your Roman history will know that Caesar Augustus is the first official emperor of the Roman Empire. He was a man by the name of Octavian. He was related to Julius Caesar. He was actually his grand nephew. And he came to power in 27 BC in terms of this formal rule as emperor uh, and ruled for about 40 years until he died in the year AD 14. And his reign was very peaceful. It was, a, it was a time within the Roman borders, the, the borders of the Roman Empire, without a, a lot of turmoil, relatively speaking. But that's not the kind of peace that God's people were after. There was political peace. There was governmental peace for those who were under this authority. And yet there was a peace that they were missing and not so much a peace that is the internal kind of peace of feeling good or uh, being at peace or lacking anxiety, though some of that would be the byproduct of getting the kind of peace that they did want. But they were looking for the Prince of Peace. They were looking for the one who would bring peace to them in the state that God had promised them. The one who would rule over their nation with no one to bother them, with no one to disturb them. We saw this in Zacharias' prophecy back in chapter 1. If you look in verse 74, it says, To grant us that we, being rescued from the hands of our enemies, might serve him without fear. And then he says in verse 79 that God was going to visit them to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. This anticipated time would be the kind of time that would be characterized by peace, the absence of conflict, the absence of struggle, the absence of having to worry. Are people going to come in and conquer me? Or is this conquering empire known as Rome going to remain? Israel had been under foreign oppression now for many, many centuries. In fact, pictured by the successive empires that we learned about in the book of Daniel. Going from Babylon to Medo-Persia to Greece and now to Rome. And they longed for peace. And so the song tells us uh, that, that uh, Jerusalem or that Israel longs. They are in lonely exile here until the Son of God appears. That's what they were looking for. They were looking to get out of the exile that goes on in their own country. A kind of national house arrest, if you will. And they wanted peace instead. So even though the reign of Caesar Augustus was characterized by peace in one sense, uh, this was not the way that they wanted it. And the fact that this is even here, the days of Caesar Augustus, he is the one decreeing this indicates that something is not right for the people of Israel. Now, when did this happen? When did this decree go forth? Uh, well, it went forth, of course, in the days of Caesar Augustus. It went forth during the rule of Quirinius, when Quir uh, Quirinius was governor of Syria, as chapter 2 says. 
And based upon various historical facts in conjunction with the events that Luke describes, uh, one conservative scholar places the date for Jesus' birth anywhere between the year as far early as 10 BC all the way up through the year 1 BC, with the most likely time being sometime in late 5 or early 4 BC. Of course, remember they go backwards. So at the end of the year 5 or the beginning of the year 4. Uh, we can't know these things for certain, but this is the approximate time when these things would have been overlapping and taking place. So this is when the decree went forth and then they went up and then Jesus would have been born sometime relatively shortly after that because, of course, Mary, his mother, was already pregnant with him at this time. Uh, this also, as it says, went forth in those days, the days when John the Baptist and all the events of chapter 1 had been uh, occurring. That's the source of the decree. What's the substance? What was contained in the decree? Well, it says in chapter 1, that this, or verse 1, this decree went out that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. Now, this may sound pompous, and it may sound like, well, this is an overstatement, but this is just kind of characteristic of the way that they would have issued decrees in those days and would have talked about things that involved the whole Roman Empire. Obviously, Rome did not, uh, did not actually possess literally the entire world. There were many, many territories in what we now know to be the whole world that were not occupied by Rome, and it's not that they thought that they had the whole world occupied either, but as far as they were concerned, this is kind of all that matters. It's a little bit like the way that we use the term world series or world champion to describe our sports teams who don't really actually go and beat teams from all other countries over all the world in those events but nonetheless we call them the champions of the world because well no one else has really uh, beaten them they're the ones that win the league and that's just kind of what they call it similar kind of idea here so the whole inhabited earth had to have a census taken and what is the significance of this decree then well, there are a number of things, some immediately obvious, and then something else that we want to note here as far as what God is doing in this situation. So the significance of the decree, first of all, is that everyone had to register. It says uh, that, verse 3, everyone was on his way to register for the census. Uh, the second thing is this means that everyone, at least those who were outside the empire, or excuse me, outside the citizenship of Rome, were going to be taxed. Everyone was going to be taxed. And these conquered territories, uh, provinces that were under the rule of Rome, would have needed to have been counted, not just so that they could know how many people were out there, and certainly not to become citizens of Rome, but so that Rome could tax them. Now, put yourself in the shoes of those who are getting this decree. Uh, you are already under this empire who is imposing its laws upon you and who has its soldiers amongst you and... They are, uh, they are oppressing you in this way. And now they issue a decree that you have to go to wherever you have to register and you have to pay more taxes to them. Uh, some of us here, I would wager to say, don't like following laws like this. We don't even like to pay taxes to the government that we have voted to be over us, much less one that has conquered us. And of course, the Jews would have very much resented this taxation as is evident by the way that they regard tax collectors later in Luke's gospel. And yet we find that Mary and Joseph realize that they are under the authority of this empire. Whether the empire was right or not to do this uh, is not so much the issue here, but that the prudent and proper thing to do is to, in fact, go with everyone else and go to register so that they can pay this oppressive tax. 
Unfortunately, there is no appeal for them. There is no opportunity to go and to say, well, maybe I can stay in town and take a, uh, you know, hey, she's pregnant exception. Uh, or I'm a very nice person. I've been a good citizen, so maybe you're not going to make me pay this tax. There is none of that. They just have to go and they have to do what they are instructed to do or else they face the consequences. So then... Um, Everyone had to register, everyone was going to be taxed, and everyone had to go to their own city. That's why it says in verse 3, everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Now, this would not have been so much a Roman thing where everyone in the Roman Empire had to go to his own city, but this is likely the way that Israel would have handled this, that the Jews would have actually taken care of the way that they registered. And just as you might have different states within our union today who will have different ways of registering, whether registering to drive or to vote or carrying out things like that. So it would have been then as well. And so in Israel, evidently, in order to register for the census, they would have said, you need to go back to the town of your heritage because you're of the house and family of David, he says uh, in verse 4. This is where Joseph is going to go. So then Israel and everyone had to be taxed, and these people in particular had to go to their own city. So uh, this was decreed by Augustus, and he wants to do this. Why? Well, because he can, because he's in power, and he wants to make sure that he is getting what he can out of those conquered territories. But I want you to notice here what hopefully is already obvious by now and uh, has shown up in Luke chapter 1, but is here maybe even more prominently. The Bible shows time and time again that the kings of the earth intend to rule independently of God's authority. They intend to rule independently of God's authority. And they try to rule independent of God's authority. And yet, there is nothing that they can do to outflank him. Nothing at all. Every move they make is not only predicted by him and known in advance, but every move they make is actually in his hands. Proverbs 21.1 tells us about this. It says, The king's heart is like channels of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. The king's heart is like channels of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. So Caesar, Augustus, issues this decree. He wanted to issue the decree. He chose to issue the decree. He did it for his purposes. But he doesn't know that God is ordaining this and that God is using this decree not by accident because he realized, hey, this might be a good opportunity to make something happen. But because God wants this to come about in his sovereign plan, in his providence, to get his son to be born in a certain place. He wants to send this certain couple to a very specific city for the birth of this most special child. This is simply the way that God works. He is sovereign over all of these things. We find this when David's opposition comes from his own son in the book of 2 Samuel. And his son Absalom rebels against him. And of all the times when someone would not take the counsel of David's best counselor who had stayed behind, it was on that occasion. But it wasn't just because Absalom said, no, I'm not going to listen to you. It was because the text tells in 2 Samuel 17, 14, it was of the Lord. He was seeking an occasion against Absalom. 
God causes kings to make decisions not against their own will, but using their own will because God has this ability that he can work in this way. God causes these decisions to be made in his sovereign hand because he has bigger purposes that he's carrying out. He is the one who sent Israel down into Egypt. And while Pharaoh is hardening his heart, the text also tells us in the book of Exodus over and over again, not only that Pharaoh hardened his heart, but that who hardened Pharaoh's heart? God did. The Lord did. He is involved in all of these decisions. Proverbs tells us that the lot is cast in the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Everything that takes place, even what seems to us to be lucky or chance or random, not to mention the decrees of the most powerful rulers, are all in God's hands. He's not prevented from doing his will by this. He does his will through this. So the next time someone in the government issues a decree that you don't like, passes a law that you don't like, uh, says something that you don't like, don't just look and say, well, this is going to be hard on us. Don't just uh, put yourself in the shoes of someone who says, all I can think about is the burden of this. And no doubt, someone like Joseph, perhaps, uh, you know, he's about to be married. He's going to have this young family. He's got to pack up and bear the expenses of moving. He's got to get displaced. And now he's got to pay this tax. Maybe he's wealthy enough to not have to worry about that, but it doesn't seem so because later in Luke chapter 2, he pays the poor version of the sacrifice after Jesus is born. This would have been something that made his life more difficult in many ways. And yet God is doing something here. He's doing something. We don't have to know what he's doing to know that he is at work. And we don't have to try to identify and to peg exactly what he's doing or to say, you know, these circumstances are coming and therefore I think that God is doing this in my life. We can maybe see the things that God does work out as he does them and as he reveals them. But we don't have to know those things to rejoice that God is always working for our good through the circumstances of even things like this. People that seem to be utterly powerful against us where we are completely helpless against them and they make our lives difficult. And yet here God shows that he works through these things. And it may not be that he does that to bring about something as extremely redemptively significant for everyone as the birth of the Messiah, but he is working, Romans 8, 28 tells us, all things for our good, including governmental decrees, rules, and so on. So then, he gives this decree. This decree is issued. The second thing that happens to bring about this birth is a couple goes up. A couple goes up. Verse 4 and 5 tell us about this, and it tells us that he went up along uh, to register along with Mary, verse 5. Mary is brought back into the picture. We learned about her in verse 26 of chapter 1. She is, verse 27, a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph. Her name is Mary. Uh, the angel came and promised her this. Verse 30, don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I'm a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you, and for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. She has been told about this. Additionally, 
She is found to be with child by the Holy Spirit in Matthew chapter 1. And Joseph is, uh, he is visited by an angel to tell him, don't be afraid. Go ahead. Everything is good. And you are going to name this child Jesus because he is going to save his people from their sins. So both of them are aware of the special nature of the one whom Mary is carrying. Nonetheless, she is engaged to him, verse 5 says. Mary was engaged to him. They are legally betrothed. They, uh, she had legally passed from the family of her parents to her new husband, and yet they were not yet married. And yet she was with child. She was not just pregnant, but pregnant while unmarried. And I hope you can appreciate the social stigma that would understandably be upon them in that particular time, especially um, even if people's attitude toward them should not make such assumptions, you would understand why they might. And so uh, she is pregnant. She is engaged to Joseph. We don't know how pregnant she was. Uh, we often get this picture in our nativity stories that Mary and Joseph come into town and she's riding on a donkey and, you know, her belly is about this big and she goes up to the inn and she says, hey, you know, I'm about to have this baby and you should probably let him in because you should know that he's the son of God. And the innkeeper looks at her and says, no way. And then she goes out that night and has the baby. That's not really what it says here. It says that, uh, verse 6, while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. So all we know is that she is at some point along in her pregnancy. But she wasn't just pregnant with any child, of course. She was carrying the very Son of God. As verse 35 of chapter 1 says, For that reason the holy child shall be called the Son of God. She is transporting in her womb none other than the Lord, none other than the God-man. This miraculous conception, this wonderful baby, she is bringing along with her. And where is it that they are going? Their destination is found in verse 4. Their destination, Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth. Uh, this would have been on the northern end of the territory that was inhabited by Israel, that was possessed by them uh, more fully in earlier times, and yet uh, was not completely possessed by them at this moment. Um, would have been on the north side of what we, now, what we know as Samaria, and uh, up by the Sea of Galilee, they leave and they go to Bethlehem, to the city of David, to Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Uh, this is something like 100 miles, 90 miles, 100 miles. Today, this would take how long? A couple of hours or so by car. Uh, in those days, you would have had to travel on foot or by way of an animal. It would have taken at least a couple of days, probably more like four or five or even more, especially if you have a pregnant woman who is walking for this distance. So they're moving. Uh, they're going to take a long time to get there. Not only that, but they're going to be there for an extended period of time. Period of time. They're going to register for the census, and they evidently, when they get there, they can't just check in. They have to they have to wait for something, and they're going to be staying there. And as it turns out, they end up moving there for some time and staying there for some time afterward, as we read about in Matthew chapter two, because the Magi show up and um, it seems to be several months later if not even over a year that they before they take off so they're there for a while also it's a major inconvenience for them but notice here what Luke highlights they go up to the city of David 
which is called Bethlehem, the city of David. And this is the significant place that the Messiah was to be born. There is, um, there's a number of things that are vital about the city historically. Uh, the city of David was known from Old Testament times, or at least uh, rather this territory of Judea or Judah. Uh, the Old Testament prediction in the book of Genesis was that a ruler would come from Judah in Genesis 49. Uh, the first ruler of Israel and sort of the would-have-been dynasty of Israel was not from Judah. It was actually from Benjamin, which was Saul. And yet when Saul was rejected, God kicked into place this plan that he had promised long earlier that he would have a ruler come from Judah. And this ruler who was chosen by God was David. David, a young shepherd boy from this small town of Bethlehem. And so it's not just that this is uh, Bethlehem where he's going to be born, but also that he is from David's city, that he is from the city of the king, this king who was promised to have a dynasty and a line. And we saw this in chapter 1 at the end where it, he spoke of this in this way. He talks in verse 69 and talks about the house of David, his servant, that there would be a descendant. And we know that Joseph was of the descendants of David and then Jesus himself is a descendant of David, of this line. So why did they go there? They went there because Joseph was of, it says verse 4, the house and family of David. That's why he went to register there. But it wasn't just because of those temporal circumstances. He didn't just go to Jerusalem because that's where he was from or his family was from. He went there, of course, to fulfill divine prophecy. Micah 5 verse 2 but as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. And everybody in Israel knew that this is where the Messiah was going to come from. When he was born in Matthew 2, the, uh, the wise men showed up. And starting in verse 3, it says this, When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him, gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people. He inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. And they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And then they quote Micah 5.2, And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. In John's gospel, in the seventh chapter, you have some disputing going on because people say, surely this can't be the Messiah, can he? And some of them say, no, he's from Nazareth. And they're not just looking down on Nazareth, but even though they, they do, but it's because they're unaware of where Jesus was born. They only knew where he grew up. They recognized that the Messiah has to come from Bethlehem. So they go up, and they go up to the city because the Messiah needs to be born in the city of David to fulfill prophecy. And so verses 6 and 7, we find out what happens when they go up. Namely, a child is born. A child is born. Now, in historical terms, there was certainly quite a bit more difficulty involved than just this. It says, while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. Uh, I'm sure Mary would add a few details about all that was involved in that. But that's all that Luke reports. She gave birth to her firstborn son. And so we note here what we'll call his inconspicuous birth. His inconspicuous birth. There is no large sign on the door 
There are no fireworks being shot off while he's there being born. There are no uh, angels standing out over the house or over the uh, wherever they might be that they are actually staying there before they end up in the manger. There's, there's none of that. It's just this young lady giving birth to her firstborn son. And God has brought about his promise to give a ruler from Jerusalem. She is, he has given his promise, he has fulfilled his promise to Mary to give her a son. He has begun to fulfill his promise that someone would rise from David's dynasty to be the ruler over his people. And so he is born. He was her firstborn, it says. She gave birth to her firstborn son and she wrapped him in cloths. Well, that's where the normal situation ends. Because now Luke highlights not just his inconspicuous birth, but his humble circumstances. His humble circumstances. It says uh, she laid him in a manger. In a manger. Uh, a feeding trough. She lays him in a place where cattle would be eating from, where animals would eat from. This is not standard accommodations. Why did this take place? Well, because it says... There was no room for them in the inn, in the inn. Uh, again, once we have to kind of think about our perception of what we understand by an inn. We might think of inn and you think of a very, uh, you know, a, a hotel or a motel that has many rooms that are the kind of place you come in and out for a night, our standard hotel, motel kind of thinking. But uh, generally speaking, this is a word that's used for a guest room uh, in other places that it's used in the New Testament. And uh, it's just somewhere that guests can stay. And this may have belonged to anyone, someone they knew in some way or another, or they got to town and they looked for a place and they, uh, they found a place to stay. They rented it out. Maybe someone let them stay there. Uh, but whatever it is, they seem to have been staying there. But when the baby is born, there is not an appropriate place for them to be. A baby doesn't really take up that much more space. If they're already there and they're already staying somewhere, it's not that hard to just have the little baby there. But the issue is this is not a suitable place for him to be. And so she puts him here. There's not this lofty palace for him to stay in as would have been fitting for a king. You can imagine that many other rulers on earth would have entire rooms or maybe even wings of a palace that were dedicated to, for them to stay in. That they would have been greeted with many, many uh, dignitaries from other places. And they would have had all of their needs attended to. Here, the Son of God is born into the most humble of circumstances, not even being able to stay inside the house, laid in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. You may know the song, Once in David's royal city stood a lowly cattle shed where a mother laid her baby in a manger for his bed. Mary was that mother child, Jesus Christ, her little child. And so she, is, she places him in a manger in these substandard accommodations. Now, this may have been a humble place to stay his first night, but things were about to become quite spectacular. And that was especially true to one very, very unexpecting group. So not only is, does Mary give birth in Bethlehem, but now we move to at least a little bit of the next scene, and we see angels proclaim the Savior's birth. Verses 8 through 14, angels proclaim the Savior's birth. Uh, at the same time, we might call this, the shepherds receive the good news. 
But the focus here is on what the angels do. The angels proclaim the Savior's birth, and one in particular shows up. Uh, Note the angel's appearance. Verse 8, in the same region there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. The angel's appearance was to shepherds in the same region. Uh, They were nearby. We don't know exactly how far, but they were just in the area, enough to where they could get there that night, as we'll see in a moment. Uh, There were some shepherds out there. We don't know how many there were. We don't know their names. We don't know anything else about them. So why are they chosen? Why are they significant? Well, shepherds would have a couple of possible symbolic things here. First of all, Christ's connection with shepherds as a shepherd himself. Uh, Christ's connection with shepherds in his humility. These were not exactly the high status people of society. Also, it would be appropriate for shepherds to receive the news of Jesus' birth as David himself, this king, this predecessor, an archetype of the king of Israel, was himself a shepherd and was pulled from tending the sheep, from tending the flock, to be made king over Israel, as he himself acknowledges. So being born in the city of David and having shepherds be the ones to receive the announcement would, of course, have been appropriate as well. But perhaps the most important thing about them is not anything about them in particular. It's just the fact that these are completely uh, neutral witnesses. They are uninformed about any of this until this time, other than what they would know, the same as anyone else, from reading their Old Testament. They have no idea what has gone on. They have no idea what is taking taking place that very night. Rather, they're just out there doing their job, and all of a sudden, this happens. So there are shepherds staying out in the fields, keeping watch over their flocks by night, and an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them. All of a sudden, this messenger comes. He's not identified here as the angel was in chapter 1. That was the angel Gabriel. And though it could have been him, it seems like he may have been named if he were the one. And really, it doesn't necessarily matter whether it was Gabriel or another angel. We just know that it was an angel. And of course, very often an angel comes. And when an angel comes, what does he do? Well, he makes them scared. And so it was sudden and uh, this appearing of the angel was glorious. It says the glory of the Lord shone around them. We know the glory of the Lord from the Old Testament where we would read about the pillar of cloud by day and of fire by night. We read about God's glory enveloping Mount Sinai when he was giving the Ten Commandments. We read about his glory filling the tabernacle after its completion in the book of Exodus. And uh, we even read about the glory of the Lord being upon the, uh, the temple and then departing eastward from the temple in the book of Ezekiel in chapters 8 and 9 and 10 and 11 with a promise one day to return in the same way. The glory of the Lord was how God manifested his presence. Here the glory of the Lord shines around them. And this is different then than Gabriel's appearance described in Luke chapter 1. Gabriel does have a kind of weight and, uh, and even a, a certain glory that may make people afraid. Daniel chapter 8 tells us about that. Daniel was quite frightened when he saw the angel Gabriel. But this is distinctly the glory of the Lord. Something even more noteworthy. And it, as this incarnate child has been born, this incarnate Lord, it is appropriate that the glory of the Lord would come and would shine and would be brought into the world in this way. Well, the predictable result when the angel shows up is they were terribly frightened. And of course they were. And this isn't just one of them all of a sudden hallucinating or something like that, but there are many of them. There are shepherds, plural, 
They know they're not crazy. They are seeing something amazing so that they can all witness this. Well, as with Zacharias and Mary, there is uh, a sequence of events that takes place. An angel appears. There's a response of fear. And then there will be a comfort and a message and an accompanying sign. Of course, in chapter 1, we saw Zacharias should not have asked for a sign, but he did. We saw that Mary did not ask for a sign and was given one. And here in this text, we'll see that the shepherds are also not asking for a sign, but are nonetheless given one themselves. The angel's announcement is what we will look at here briefly as we close this morning. The, angel, the angel's announcement, what did he come to say? What did this messenger of God want these shepherds to know? What did he want them to bear witness to? There is an angel here that would have been enough to tell stories about for the rest of your life. But why did he send them? What does he want them to know? And what does he want them to relate to other people when he goes to visit the child? And what does he want for us to know and to have recorded for us even down to this very day? What does the angel say? Well, the first thing he says is, do not fear. Don't be afraid. He has to tell them this because they were. And then he clarifies. He says, I bring you good news. For behold, I bring you Good news of great joy. The angel said to them, do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. This announcement, bringing you good news, is the word that we use for preaching the gospel. It's a word that has come to be transliterated and brought over into our own language as the word evangelize. It's a proclamation of good news. It was the word for uh, the message that Gabriel was sent to bring to Zacharias in chapter 1, verse 19. I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And fundamentally, the birth of Jesus Christ is good news. It's the best news. How much time do you spend reading the news? How much time do you spend looking for things that are new? Yet here we have news that is just as good and just as joyful every single day. It never changes. It's the best thing that you could read every single day. It's the best thing that you could think about every single day. The good news in the coming of Jesus Christ. And of course, the New Testament opens this up and and gives much further detail about why the gospel is good news, not just because this is the Son of God coming into the world and being born, as we find here in verse 11, but because of What that then does, the gospel comes to include not only the birth of Jesus Christ, but also his life as he lived a perfect life, as he did everything that God instructed him to do. And then he went and he suffered and he died on a cross to bear our sins, to take away the penalty that we deserve. And he rose from the grave and we are told and instructed to repent and to believe the good news. This good news, of course, is good news in and of itself, but it is uh, conditional. It is conditioned upon someone actually receiving that. And the way that they receive that good news is not just by hearing it, but by hearing it with faith, believing the message, believing that Jesus is who God says he is, believing that they need a savior, that Jesus didn't just come into the world as someone that we could look to as a good example or someone who is optional or someone who provides the best way of life, but someone who is the only one who could take away our sins and the only one who can save us. He is the Savior. He is the only one. 
And so the birth of Jesus is good news because it brings all of these amazing things to pass that God is doing by virtue of his saving work through him. And it is that which brings great joy. I wonder if we sometimes lose sight of this. There is so much that we are called to do in the Christian life. And rightly so, we try to do these things. We recognize that there will be suffering, that there will be difficulty. We recognize that uh, Christ did not come into this world to make our lives just better here and now. Uh, He told us in the world we will have tribulation. He told us that there will be many difficult things, and not, he didn't even have to tell us for us to know that. There will be difficult things. Life has many hardships. And yet, do we stop and realize that this is a message of great joy? This is the kind of thing that in the midst of your trials, you can find great joy over because God has given his son into the world. God has brought about the birth of a savior. And this message is not just limited to Jesus' family. It's not just limited to the shepherds. It's not just limited to those in Judea. And it's not just limited to people of even that time. It says this will be for all the people. Contextually, this refers to the nation. He is coming to save them. But we know that the gospel extends far beyond just the nation of Israel and far beyond just those who were alive at that time. Because Acts 2.39, Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost says, the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. This good news of great joy is for anyone here, anyone who believes this message. It's for all the people. And that is because a Savior has been born. It says here, For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Next time we'll consider the claims of him as Christ the Lord. But we can understand as we finish here this morning that this is what Jesus came into the world to do. He came to reign as a king. And he came to show us what God expects and to tell us what to do as a teacher. He came to model godliness and to model what righteousness looks like. He came to be worshipped, but he came as a savior. And this is the way that if you are a Christian, you know him. And if you're not a Christian, this is the way that you can come to know him before anything else as the one who will save you from your sins. So if you have not done that, call upon him today. And if you have done that, praise God for this. And you can worship him as now the newborn Savior. Let's go to the Lord in prayer together. And we will pick up here next time. God, thank you for your great mercy in giving us your son, Jesus Christ. We praise you for your sovereign hand in causing him to be born miraculously and providentially in fulfillment of your promises. God, help us to rejoice In the birth of Christ, even though it's long ago, in years, it is always just as relevant every day. Help us to find joy in the good news of his birth, and may we proclaim it to others eagerly. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.